Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you this morning. I hope you are already encouraged by reading all the way through Romans chapter 11 and into 12. I want to do that one more time just because Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2 are that good. So please hear God's word to us this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. To reveal to us what this faith is and the great joy that you have put before Jesus and that you have now set before us. Pray that as we look to your word, we would see that joy. We would see and savor more of Christ so that we can run with endurance and daily take faithful steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever feel like life is a race? Some of you might hear me ask you if you're a hamster in a wheel and you just feel like things keep turning, the same thing, the daily grind, day in and day out. Sometimes it feels like it's so far off that the finish line is just out of view, that we've just got to press on. I'm not sure what endurance means, but just keep going. Some of us might feel like we're going over rocky or treacherous terrain, like after we hike up in the mountains and it just had a rain and all the rocks and roots are exposed, and which one am I going to trip over next? Some of us might feel like we're going through a riverbed with just strong enough current to catch every footstep and push us back. Our author this morning is showing us that we are running the most significant and satisfying race that we could possibly run, and the finish line is in view. So this morning, I want us to see that we are first called to run with endurance. And the way that we can do that is by looking to Jesus. First, we're going to run with endurance And the way, the how that we can do that is by, secondly, looking to Jesus. We're all in a race, and the question then that comes is what kind of race? What race exactly are we running? Are we here for our own sprint? Are we on the hamster wheel for career progression? Are we in the slog of whatever life has thrown at us in this last season? Whatever place we are, we need to know that we're running the race God has set before us, and we need to know that we're running an endurance race, a marathon. I've never personally ran any of those. I don't enjoy running. But that's where we are. Every single footstep 
moving on to endure the mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual challenges that are involved in this race, that's where we are. That's God telling us on the map, you are here, and this is the race I've set before you. Hebrews 10.36, the author here has put it in this context, for you need endurance. You have need of this endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We are told what this race looks like, what the finish line looks like. The promises of God are our finished inheritance. That's where we're running. So to set the scene, in chapter 12, when we get to that really important word, he says, therefore, what is he talking about? He's not just giving us a picture of a stadium, and some of us might envision it that way, and I think a little bit of that is helpful to show all of the saints for all times, those from the Old and the New Testament, those from the last 2,000 years of church history are encompassing us in this grand finale where we're taken in deep breaths, just trying to claw our way to the finish line. I think therefore is telling us that the verse that comes right before that, that these witnesses who were finishers, not just a cheerleading section, but they themselves are finishers, have proven the faithfulness of Christ. Because, in verse 40 of chapter 11, the author says, God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, without us, they wouldn't be made perfect. I think what that is saying is this great cloud of witnesses is all focused on Christ. They're looking at Him. They're pointing to Him and saying, how good is this Savior that has been faithful day in and day out. The whole chapter 11 was getting us to see the specifics of living by faith. That it's not some grand pie-in-the-sky philosophical idea. It is a grand idea, but it's Christ. It's Christ that shows us we can live day in and day out or in this race of endurance that we can take another step when it feels like our legs are going to give out from us. The whole hall of faith is pointing that there is real endurance that real human beings can have. And that's an encouragement to go back and read their lives. These short little snippets are encompassing 10, 20, 50, 100 years of these saints of the Old Testament's lives. And we could go through the new. Paul himself, or Peter, or any of the other disciples. Years and years lived seeing the faithfulness of God. Now I understand each season of life has different challenges. If you're a young person here this morning, you might just have heard a bunch of blah, blah, blah. And I want you to look around the room. Every gray hair that you might see is a testament to the faithfulness of God. Every person sitting in a seat in different parts of this fellowship hall 
have gone through different moments, different seasons, different decades, some of us, where they're doubting or rebelling or thinking that we're de-churched. I don't want to have anything to do with those people. This is the chapter that documents for us what life looks like when we think there's no hope left. Whether they're wrestling with identity or fame or pleasure or rebellion or even if we can make this really pertinent to Sanctity of Life Sunday, wrestling with should I get an abortion, should I convince my girlfriend, how can I live with the guilt of knowing I did that 20, 30, 50 years ago? That's where this comes into play. Because Christ is faithful there when we stumble and fall. So take time to ask one of the witnesses here sitting around us, Ask you to tell them a story from their teen years, from the challenges of their 20s, from the joys of early marriage, from what it was like to raise kids who seemed like prodigals, or to raise humble kids in a decadent society, or to struggle after that empty nest season, or what is it like to pursue a career at TVA or in the hospital network, or just working a job. How do we vote in challenging elections? How do we go off to unpopular wars? How do we watch parents who themselves are in need of parenting? How do we turn into our caretakers of our parents when they're patients with cancer or dementia or Alzheimer's or heart disease or COVID? See the look in their eyes when they point to the faithfulness of a Savior who has marked out the race for them. You see, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You and I in this room are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They are witnesses to the faithfulness of Christ. They're not just here to see you and me run through those challenging but silly kind of seasons of life. They're real challenges. Just like Paul writes to his protege, to his young mentor, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, he says, I, Paul, have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He's going out of his way to tell his young pastor, protege, you have seen it in me, and it wasn't me. It was the strength of Christ himself. So pursue him. This cloud of witnesses, I think it's really significant because it's, it's a cloud. In the Old Testament terms, it's not a set of individuals that all make up a whole. It's the unity. It's the whole group. And the significance here, I think, is in the sense that they're surrounding us, yes, but they're onlookers to Christ. They have seen Him, just like we've seen Moses as an example of that. Back in 11, verse 26 and 27, see what it says there? That He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For what was he doing? He was looking for the reward, 
By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses is in that cloud of witnesses, and he's looking to Christ to say, how good and faithful is our Savior. So we too, we can be able, we can have the faith, we can go day in and day out, seeing a Christ who is worth looking at, seeing a cloud of witnesses who have all pursued him in all these different, unique, and yes, challenging and sometimes stumbling ways, and we can press on. You can trust the one who has set before you. He has marked out the race that you must run. He has a purpose. And the good news for us is he owns the track. It's like we're on home field advantage because he's the Savior in charge. So press on and don't shrink back like we've heard back in 1039, which means I think in the analogy of this race that We can put each foot down purposely. We can take each step intentionally, fixing our eyes, looking to Jesus, and not neglecting the witness in our own assembly. We're here as a we and not just a set of me's because we need one another. We have all of this other scripture all the way back in the Old Testament because we need to read what the goodness of the Lord looks like in the hard times of life across the span of ages. And we need to run with endurance. I think it's significant that the running with endurance is all fronted. There's three phrases that come before that important phrase. Since we're clouded, surrounded, sorry, not clouded, but we're surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I think both of these are significant because they help us see that these aren't perfect people. They're not heroes put up on pedestals. They're real men and women. Y'all are real people. We deal with real-life struggles, challenges, burdens, messy situations, hard relationships, sin in our own lives, and the sin out there. When the author is describing to set aside or to lay aside every weight, there's a lot of pieces in the race analogy that could be. I think it could be some of the good things, the good equipment that might be helpful the good ideas, the good training, the good career progressions, the good promotions, the good vacations with family, the good parts about this relationship. It could be any number of those good things that we've made ultimate things. That we've said, what if I need this later on? What if this is really important over there? And in the light of the rest of the race, it's going to be a hindrance those people that I've learned about and read about and seen documentaries on that have run long distances, you know how they count ounces? They're buying socks because they're lightweight. They're buying every bit. I won't talk about spandex because right, every single bit of their outfit 
because it's lightweight. They don't want anything that's going to hinder them, not just for aerodynamics, but because they know they have thousands of steps over those miles. In terms of the life of faith, I think Paul does this really well in Philippians when he says, let your minds, fix your minds on everything that's excellent, that's pure, that's praiseworthy. Keep your focus there because all the other things are going to be hindrances. They might be good, they might be fine, they might be valuable at some point, but don't make them ultimate. And in case we're missing the other part of that, he says, and let us lay aside the sin which clings so closely, or other translations say that it easily entangles. It weaves its way into our thinking. It deceives us into those choices that maybe, you know, everybody's doing it. It's not going to affect anybody else. Nobody will care. It's just me. Those are sins that easily entangle us. They will not only distract us from the route we run, they will try to persuade us that the race isn't worth running at all or that running over here and stopping for a short nap, totally acceptable, don't press on. I I can't but think of uh, Pilgrim's Progress in in terms of a lot of these details that you've probably either uh, read the book with the really good illustrations, the, the burden that the pilgrim has, and he's he just, it's huge. And it just bears him down, and it, he unpacks it at the foot of the cross. And, and it's not only a messy tangle of sin that comes out. It's all these things that he thought were trinkets of goodness and hopeful memories over here and helpful things over there. And none of that is helping our gaze, our, our eyes to be fixed solely on Christ. Both of them, I think, turn us from this endurance race to to being lesser pleased, lesser objects of satisfaction, lesser sources of pleasure. This is what C.S. Lewis is talking about when he talks about being too easily pleased. We're we're too easily satisfied. We think that this, whatever the the fill-in-the-blank is there for you, is going to do it for us. And the author of Hebrews time and time again has says, no, your hearts are built for Christ, so pursue him. Fix your eyes there. He's the only thing that's going to satisfy you in the way that you were made to be satisfied, and it's that good. So that gets me to our second point. In running this race to en- of endurance, that's what we're in. How do we possibly keep on? How do we put another foot in front of the other when it seems so hard? Like an uphill battle, whatever other part of that analogy you want to add in. I want to take a second, though, to point out the rhetorical direction that our author uses here. Right in the middle of this verse, he just says that there's a race set before us. So the way that he describes the motivation that our hearts can have is he says, look to Jesus. What he doesn't do here is he doesn't give us a big long guilt trip. 
He doesn't say, you better or else. He doesn't go into regrets. He doesn't go back and say, see those other times when you should have known better? What if you had done this here? He doesn't give us any of the shame or guilt. He gives us joy. He sets before us that Jesus, He's the object of our faith, He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, and He endured for a greater joy. He's saying, look how good, look how beautiful, look how amazing, look how satisfying and rich the finish line is going to be for you. How good is it to run that way? That's his argument. I just want to tuck this away for next week. Because when we get to the next section of chapter 12, and he makes the point that some of the races that we're in, some of those foot falls that we're putting down, they're going to be painful. And they're going to be painful because a good Heavenly Father is disciplining us. If we see our race, if we're motivated to keep on because I don't want to have regrets, if we're driven to the next step because of guilt, because of that shame that burdens us, we're going to be tempted to see a good Heavenly Father disciplining us for more guilt. Because we're not enough. That's not the message of the gospel. Friends here, that's not the point of this passage. There is a joy, an enduring, lasting fullness of joy that Christ is putting before us to say, run for this. It's that good. Tuck that away for next week. So when we looked at Jesus, how does that keep us moving? Well, first of all, it reminds us that our focus needs to be on him. That actually sets our direction. Have you ever seen in the marathons, again, I'm only an observer, I've never run one. Have you ever seen one gets that good long stride and they're just glancing at the sidelines, smiling? They're going to trip on something. You're almost waiting for it. They're so hyper-focused on the finish line that keeps them going in the right direction. That's how we need to be with Christ. He's the object of our faith. Faith. He's the object of our faith. The absolute undeniable truth of every single day for you and me. James Montgomery Boyce puts it like this. He says, it is for love of him, love of Christ, and desire to be like him that we take up our cross and willingly follow him. We put him as the standard, as the focus, as the direction of our life. Next, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Faith is only as strong as its object. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying he's the, he's the originator. He's the firstborn among many brothers. He's the one that has started your faith. And he's the perfecter, the completer. It's the end goal of the purpose for which your faith has been started. That's who this Christ is. Another commentator says this about this idea, that Jesus was the first to express an unqualified obedience to the will of God in a fallen world that was consigned to death, and so displayed the goal or the purpose of faith 
as well as, catch this, its paramount power. The motivation, the spirit-driven motivation to keep going, to see by the eyes of faith, and to be driven by the object of faith, the founder and completer or perfecter of our faith. And then he endured for the joy that was set before him. This isn't just giving us Jesus as a good example. He obviously and clearly is an example. But it's so much more than that. Look at the passage, how it phrases that. The the founder and perfecter of our faith, this is this Jesus that we need to fix our eyes on. And he was him who for the joy that was set before him, he endured. What did he endure that we're also called to endure? Well, he endured obeying God's will. He's going to endure a cross. I'm not going to be crucified on a cross. That's not how I'm following his example. But Matthew and countless others are telling us to take up our cross, which is the analogy of running the race, putting your foot down day in, day out. So he endured. What is the race that was set before Jesus? What is the race that is set before us? In terms of that race, God the Father gave him his perfect, complete will. He explained to Jesus, this is the path. And Jesus was obedient. He endured in that. What is incredible for me as I was studying this passage is that what did Jesus endure for? He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. I think we have to settle, we have to sit on this, we have to let it soak in because this is so rich. Richard Phillips says, There is no joy like the accomplishment of a noble task, and of the noblest task of all eternity, the cross of Christ. Christ himself was able to say, I have finished it but I think that's only a snippet of the joy that Christ endured for because the cross. I I absolutely think he got the smile of the Father on the other side of the cross. I absolutely think he got to enjoy the glory that is now completed. It's brought to its perfection in what Christ has done for us. But I think there's a richer aspect to this, and I think this is the deepest motivation we can see in this passage. Follow me for a second. Jesus gives this parable in Matthew 13, right after the important parable of the sower, which is kind of like the the framing parable for all the other parables. He tells this short little two-sentence parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Catch this next phrase. Then in all his joy, in his joy he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys the field. Now, I absolutely think that this parable is intended for us to interpret as we're the men. We're the people. We're walking through life. And when we find the gospel, when he puts that in his path, it's worth going and selling everything to get the treasure of the gospel. But I think like so many of the parables, Jesus is also putting himself in the place of the man. He's in a field. It's white for harvest. And he, when he 
goes across and he sees this treasure that's been hidden in that field that is you and you and you and me, Jesus says, I will give up the treasures of heaven. I will humble myself to come all the way down, all the way down to your place, all the way down to the humility of humanity. And I will buy you as his treasure. Did you see what the motivation for Christ there was? Yes, he's inheriting glory unending through his work on the cross. But part of that, in and through that, he is doing, he is enduring the cross, despising the shame. He he didn't think it was worth hesitating for a second the shame that would be heaped on him for those hours on the cross and the hours before that because of the joy that was set before him. And you, please hear this, young and old, you are the joy that was set before him. You are the treasure that he wants to cling to. You are the enjoying, satisfying treasure that he wants to enjoy for the rest of eternity. You. How much joy could you run away a race with with that in mind that Jesus is at the finish line? All the witnesses are surrounding you. And they're looking at Jesus because he's looking at you and me and he's saying, run, run. That's the motivating joy. He endured what we deserve so that we can receive what he deserved. What he rightly had before the foundations of the world and what he has for the rest of eternity, he wants to have you included in that joy. And so he's saying to you and I this morning, run, faithful witnesses, run with endurance. Please pray with me. God, our Heavenly Father, I don't know everyone's situation this morning, but I know we're all in a race. And I pray as we look to your word, I pray as we look to the cross, I pray as we look to the joy that is in Jesus' eyes as he looks to us, that we would see and Savior, that we would enjoy the joy of Christ in our endurance runs. Whatever you have set before us this week, whatever you have set before each one of these people here, I pray that you would remind them to look to you, to look to Christ, to see his smile for us, and to run with endurance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.